Good morning, everybody. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. Whether you're joining us on television, online, or right here in the sanctuary, I'm so very, very glad you decided to join us for worship today. We are right in the middle of our series this Lent, looking at all the trees in our Bibles. Our Bibles are a forest of trees where powerful God encounters occur, from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden uh, to Jesus dying for us on the tree of Calvary to the trees we haven't seen yet, the trees of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And today, we're going to enter a story, a gentleman's message, who the entire book is built upon trees. The metaphors, the messages it's built upon, it is all about the trees. Growing up, every spring, I frequently found myself at some kind of a garden nursery uh, with my father. Whether it was Schneider's Flower-Rama down on 16th and Broadway, uh, we really like to name things O-Rama. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, right? Bolarama, Skaterama, Mallarama, Steakarama. I would totally go to a Steakarama, by the way. Uh, so I'm at Schneider's Flower Rama. I'm over at Cashman's Nursery, or we were looking at trees at a place on Airport Road once. Now I take along because we needed new tomato plants for the garden for the for the summer, or we needed new flowers for the front yard, or we needed a tree to replace the one that blew down in a summer storm. I loved the smell of walking into the nursery. Uh, it smelled just like summertime, with all of the newborn plants and trees everywhere. It was the smell of new life. Today we dive into Isaiah's story. He was living during a period in Israel's history that was far from perfect, but he could see new life. He could see a new world coming down the road. Isaiah lived 700 years. He lived 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. Yet he is quoted more than 80 times in your New Testament, more than 80 times in the books about Jesus, Jesus himself quotes Isaiah directly about a half a dozen times. It's not surprising that Jesus, the tree of life, would quote directly from the tree nursery book in our Bibles. Isaiah is the grand central station of trees. Isaiah's prophecies, they overflow with trees and metaphors. They involve the land as they return again and again to the coming of the Messiah, the one who is going to not only bring life to all who follow Jesus, but put the whole earth on a path to entire restoration, like it was in the beginning in the garden, where God and humanity walking together, where there was and will be again no more pain or suffering or tears or death ever again. Isaiah essentially says, look at the Messiah, look for the Messiah. He resembles a tree. You're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles on your favorite device or the screen with me. You're going to find Isaiah in the middle-ish portion of your Bible. Now, Isaiah was called to be God's voice, God's spokesperson, God's mouthpiece when he was 18 years old. 18. What were you doing when you were 18 years old? Were you calling the leaders of a nation back on track? Or... Or like me, were you graduating high school, looking forward to post-high school life? It was college for me and working. I mean, it absolutely amazes me. Absolutely amazing that God uses this teenager, works through this teenager, not only to call Israel back at that moment in history, but still centuries later, up through today, we're still talking about Isaiah's words, pointing the way to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Isaiah's book is a collection of what scholars call oracles, 
we'd call them sermons. We're essentially reading a collection of Isaiah's sermons he gave throughout his life. And they go back and forth. Some are words of challenge and powerful words of correction versus words of grace and hope. Isaiah's story opens up with the, his nation of Israel being brought into court and they're going to face the charges from God. Basically, to summarize the charges against Israel, they are incorrigible teenagers. They are incorrigible teenagers. They think of nothing but anyone but themselves. They don't even have the sense that God gave a donkey. Now in my spirit, I'm sensing some parents of teenagers wanting to shout an amen to that. Uh, but before we think too much of ourselves, we've, many of us have been teenagers before, and we know we've all had moments and know exactly the moments where we also did not have the sense of a donkey. Now this is, what, this is how Isaiah puts it. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize or care for them. Incorrigible teenagers. God is sick and tired of all of their religious trappings. He doesn't want their offerings. He doesn't want their gatherings. He doesn't want their pretend devotion. They fall into this trap of worshiping God and other gods in this time and place. When scripture says our God is a jealous God, it means God requires our complete and sole devotion. Nothing else. Nothing else should be at the center of our lives or shaping us but God. They conducted pagan other gods ceremonies in sacred oak trees and around sacred groves. And because of that, Isaiah says, the Hebrew people will wither and be good for nothing but firewood. Ouch. That's a prophet trying to provoke change. He's trying to get people to change and to get back to a different way to live, to following God alone. Really, every generation, every single one of us must fight the temptation to worship God and something else. It was other gods in Isaiah's day. Guess what? It is still other gods today. We just call them different things. Whether it's our favorite political affiliation or the pursuit of money and wealth or building a career to the detriment of our people, the family under our same roof or our family spread across all kinds of roofs, or pursuing our own selfish needs without regard to any other people, near or far. Friends, we still have other gods. We try to worship God and politics, God and money, God and career, God and our own selfish wants. Our God is a jealous God. We're supposed to worship God and God alone. Trying to worship God and something else, we end up worshiping a God that looks nothing like Jesus, but a God who approves of whatever our favorite political party does, a God who approves of whatever it takes to get wealth, a God who approves of whatever we need to do to climb the ladder, and a God who says, do whatever you want, forget about other people. They don't matter. The temptation still exists to worship God and something else today. 21st century gods just don't have the same names as the gods of the biblical variety. Isaiah notes in chapter 3, Israel will no longer have leaders with character or the ability to lead. I will make boys their leaders and toddlers their rulers. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. 
Young people will insult their elders, and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. Leaders acting like children, people that are arrogant and haughty, language loses its meaning, people call evil good and good evil, light dark and darkness light. It's a bleak picture. And at various times in Isaiah, you're wondering if you're writing about reading and writing about ancient history or if he's writing about current events. Because guess what, friends? The same human condition, the same human condition that affected Isaiah's people still affects us today. Looking out for ourselves and no one else. No compassion, no empathy, no mercy, no grace for others. That, my friends, is what our Bible calls sin. We need help. We need someone to save us from ourselves, much like the Israelites needed someone to save them from themselves. We need that Messiah that Isaiah says looks like a tree. Isaiah at times just whips back and forth from condemnation and judgment to hope and restoration. In chapter 1, right after he calls them incorrigible teenagers, we get these words of hope. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. God, the one who knows so clearly, so very clearly how much we fall short in our love for God and our love for neighbor, God makes a way for us to be restored, to be made whole, to find the hope and the healing we're all desperately looking for. We've seen Israel worship other gods and tree groves and whatnot. Now Isaiah is going to show us the good news that comes, unsurprisingly, through a different tree. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Now out of the family line of King David, one will come, the Messiah, to restore broken humanity to a God who desperately loves them, loves us. Now this blessing originated years before out of a dark moment in King David's life. It looked at this moment in David's life like he was going to die. That's it. That's the end of David. That's the end of his reign on the throne. That's the end of his family reigning on the throne. It looks like this was the end of his story and his family's story. And in that moment of desperation, of despair, of hopelessness, God says no. No, David, this is not the end. In fact, someone from your family will be on the throne forever. The Messiah is going to come from your life, from your family tree. It is just like God. It is just like God when things look absolutely hopeless to come in with bright, unfiltered hope. Now, whenever I see a tree stump, I assume it is entirely dead. That's it. That's the end of this tree. It's going to deteriorate, and after a period of time, it just won't be anymore. Except, so very often, something new is birthed out of this dead tree stump. A brand new shoot. A brand new tree takes root right in the middle of it. There was so much happening under the surface that we couldn't see. Activity and life was happening. Things were moving and receiving nourishment and growing. All that we couldn't see. And then, finally, we see a result of all this action under the surface as a tiny little shoot comes out of this dead tree stump. Friends, it is in God's very character to bring life to the dead around and in us. Places inside of us that feel dead and people around us that seem without hope, without plan, and without purpose. 
For places that feel dead in you, do not give up hope. God is in the resurrection business. For those that you love and you deeply care about, that have been lost for years and decades, do not give up hope. Do not give up praying and loving and working for those that seem hopeless because you have no idea. You have no idea how God is moving and developing and changing and shaping a person underneath the surface. Our God specializes in bringing the dead back to life. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, before the Messiah arrives. So Isaiah gives us these clues all over his sermons of what the Messiah Messiah should be like. Now, if Isaiah had predicted my arrival on earth, he might have written something like this. Uh, Male born in Munster, Indiana, adopted by parents in Bismarck, North Dakota, married high school sweetheart after college, became United Methodist pastor, had two children, and a variety of dogs and cats. Now, if you know a person well, you can do this pretty easily. You can quickly summarize in a few sentences an accurate description of their unique identity. But friends, only God, only God can describe someone ahead of time. Seven centuries before Jesus arrived, it's exactly what Isaiah does. He lays down and narrows down the possibilities of what this Messiah is going to be like. Dropping clues in his sermons, he writes this. A virgin is going to conceive the Messiah. That the Messiah will be despised and rejected by men. The Messiah would be killed for our transgressions, for our sins. He would be led to the slaughter and would make no effort to escape. The Messiah would heal the blind and the deaf. A man from the wilderness would announce the Messiah. And on and on and on Isaiah goes. Isaiah's predictions about the Messiah, they're so specific. They're so unique. Not only that, his description, the description of the Messiah is unlike anything you're going to find in any other religion or other gods. If you were to Google images of other gods or visit a museum and look at all the other gods, images of gods from various times and cultures, you're going to find some gods or animals combined with the bodies of humans. There'd be feathered serpent gods, eagle-headed gods, feigned gods. Some would have crowns of gold. If various gods have human form, they'd be magnificent in appearance. They'd be amazing to look at. Some statues portray gods that have transcended the world with eyes closed in peaceful meditation. What's the dominant image of the Messiah, of Jesus in art today? Jesus on the cross. Christ in agony or in death. Jesus has not transcended the sufferings of the world. The opposite, in fact, he took on all of the world's sin and suffering. Instead of a crown of gold, he wears a crown of thorns. His clothing is non-existent, or he's in rags. He is not the most powerful looming over humanity. Instead, he is nailed to a dead tree, the Messiah of the world dying on a dead tree. Isaiah puts it like this in chapter 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. 
We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we throughout his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for our own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid upon him the sins of us all. This is known as the suffering servant passage. It's unique in our scripture in that when it was placed in the Isaiah's book, placed into his collection of sermons, this was not describing anybody who had lived up to this point in history. It was not reflecting back upon someone who had lived. This was pure prophecy. This was pure looking ahead to the future. This is what the Messiah is going to be like, written 2,700 years ago. It is amazing. It's frankly amazing that it made the cut and that we get it in our scripture. When we look at Christ on the cross today, we look at this picture of the Messiah described here in Isaiah, there's no mistaken identity. All of Isaiah's clues to who the Messiah is resembles one person in history. And perhaps even more telling, Isaiah's picture of the Messiah resembles no other gods, no other gods in history. In confirmation class with our students here at Legacy, we spent some time discussing other popular world religions, their commonalities, and their difference, differences with following Jesus. And if you're going to pin me down and ask me what is the one difference that makes Christianity unique from all the other world religions, it'd be this. We worship the God who suffers. We worship the God who suffers. We follow a God on that Messiah tree who knows what it means to suffer, to hurt, to cry, to live our lives as one of us because Jesus, fully human and fully God, did. Jesus lived, laughed, loved, cried, weeped like one of us. Jesus was the one who made the way for anyone who wants it to be put into right relationship with God right now, today. Jesus is ready and willing to bring hope, healing, and wholeness to anybody who wants it in this moment. You just have to ask. The God who suffers with us is willing to walk with us to bring abundant life, the abundant life Jesus wants for everyone. You know, adding to the uniqueness of Isaiah, he was the only prophet to give us a physical description. What is this Messiah going to look like? Now notice, he does not describe Jesus as a supermodel. He doesn't describe the Messiah as a supermodel, but someone who looked incredibly ordinary, unlike a small plant or a tree. Unlike the majestic appearances of other gods, there's nothing imposing, there's nothing noteworthy about the Messiah. In one of my devotions this week, the author was noting a trend in modern art of people trying to reconstruct what Jesus might have actually looked like. So often in our part of the world, our images of Jesus are only the baby blue Caucasian variety. And we know that that's not what a first century Middle Eastern man would have looked like. In 2001, a forensic anthropologist found a first century Galilean skull. And so he reconstructed it, applying some computer modeling, gave it olive skin and curly short hair in the style of the first century. Now, he didn't claim this was actually Jesus' face. He just wanted us to see that this is what a first century regular Galilean man would have looked like. And he sure doesn't look like the blue-eyed Caucasian Jesus we so often see where we live. 
Now, more recently, a Dutch photographer used some uh, computer modeling to redo all kinds of famous historical figures. And this is his portrait of Jesus. Again, gives us a look at just another ordinary, nothing special Messiah, what Jesus might have looked like. There is nothing noteworthy, nothing noteworthy about him. Except, except we know Jesus gives life. Jesus brings, has the power to bring hope, healing, and wholeness to anybody who wants it. Right now, today. We, however, keep choosing things that keep taking life away. We reject Jesus. We disobey God. We walk away from the tree of life. The God who suffers with us wants us to follow Jesus for life right now, today. Now, one of the most amazing predictions about the Messiah is that he'd be resurrected, that he would die and rise to life again. Psalm notes, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Life from death appears in some of the other stories. You've already seen this Lent. We've seen a little bit in Isaac's story and in Job's. In both of those instances and with Jesus, life after death is tied to a tree. Now, my son is currently fascinated with engines and machines right now, so consider this a design challenge for you this week. I'd like you to make a machine that is one inch by one quarter of an inch that contains an internal clock capable of running, let's say this clock's going to run 50,000 years. This machine must maintain the integrity of its own software because it's going to be offline for 2,000 years. Then in another 2,000 years, this machine, you got to make sure it turns itself on. Once activated, this machine is going to produce, procure raw materials and power, and it's going to grow to 100,000 times its original size and mass. It can't travel to do that, though. can't move it. It's got to stay right where it is. It must be capable of communicating with similar machines, regardless of how old those machines are. And lastly, this machine must be capable of supporting human life. That's it. Easy enough. Engineers, science Olympiad students, get on it, and build it. That sounds just ridiculous, right? Absolutely impossible. How do you build a machine with that age and that ability? Except this machine exists. It exists perfectly functional, and it supports human life. This machine is, of course, a tree, resurrected back to life after 2,000 years. In the early 60s, archaeologists found a jar of 2,000-year-old date seeds. And they put these seeds in a drawer. And about 40 years after that, somebody thought, hey, you think one of these things might actually grow a tree? Yes, one did. So they named this tree appropriately Methuselah. It stands, I know, it's well-named, it stands more than 10 feet tall and it produces pollen. Methuselah pollinated a female date tree, and the fruit of their crossing has borne children. Who could have predicted that a tree would bounce back to life after 2,000 years? Friends, the God who suffers specializes in resurrection. God wants to bring you to life today, right now, in the here and now, and in the world that is yet to come. Restoration, hope, wholeness is available to you right now in Jesus. 
know, from Isaiah's time, from his point of view, he was looking forward to the Messiah, to the day the Messiah would come, would suffer for us and make a pathway to God. He also looked even further ahead. Isaiah looked further ahead to the day when the whole world, every person on it was made whole. Isaiah looked forward to the time when his people would plant vineyards and they would eat fruit. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. Isaiah relentlessly looked forward to a time when God would judge the earth and it'd be followed by a time of peace that no one, that no one has ever seen before. Isaiah writes, The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done this wondrous thing. Shout for joy, O depths of the earth. Break into song, O mountains and forests and every tree. His predictions that warlike nations would beat their swords into plowshares was made into this sculpture. And it stands today in front of the United Nations in New York City. In the midst of war in Ukraine, other conflicts on the planet, we know we're not here, where Isaiah mentions. We long for an end to conflict. We long for an end to pain and grief and human misery in our lives and in the images we see. We long for God to come and to stop and to somehow redeem it all. We look forward to that time while still working in the here and now for peace, for hope, for wholeness for everyone in Jesus. Friends, Isaiah is the tree nursery in our Bibles, pointing the way to the Messiah tree that is Jesus. May we follow and serve the God who suffers so we not only find wholeness ourselves, but we can share that hope and healing we found in Jesus to others. May every tree you see remind you of what God did for all of us in Jesus. Let's pray together. Loving God, we confess in so many ways we've tried to worship you and something else. Forgive us for trying to create a God of our own making. May your Holy Spirit invade us this week so we can be daily shaped to live like your son, to live like Jesus, showing grace and mercy and compassion to all we meet, just like he did. May our actions help others to follow your son, just like we do. It is in our resurrected Savior's name that we pray together.